This is The Enthusiasts Guild, a podcast about wonderful and interesting things and the people who enjoy them. In this episode, we talk with Thomas Pafk, a Roycroft Master Artisan. He's a woodworker, furniture maker, and designer. Tom's work is known for its beauty and high-quality craftsmanship. I'm Fletcher C. Finch. Adam Zaremski and I spoke with Tom at his workshop in beautiful East Aurora, New York. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am a Roycroft Master Artisan. I'm a furniture maker, and I've been doing this for 34 years, I believe, roughly, if I'm doing the math right. If we go back a little ways, if you want a little bit of background... I have a degree in model making, which is really obscure. That's just out there. And uh, I got that from Genesee Community College. And uh, that was pretty big time back then. And the nice thing about the the degree was it opened all kinds of doors for me. It basically uh, got me into Fisher-Price. Fisher-Price was recruiting me right out of college. I was going to go from uh, Genesee onto RIT and get my bachelor's. And then uh, basically, uh, Fisher-Price said, why don't you come work for us during the summer? So I came and worked at Fisher-Price in Medina when that's when they had a plant in Medina. So I worked there for uh, about six months and I was... It seemed like, well, there was a time when I was supposed to go back to school and they said, why don't you stay on? We like you here. And then they they kept sending me over to East Aurora to interview for model making positions because over there I was working in engineering Mm -hmm. and I was uh, doing drafting and drawings and all kinds of stuff because they didn't have any design in the Medina area. But, uh, you know, it it was still a decent job. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll I'll try this out. This, This might be all the college that I need. And I interviewed three different times in East Aurora. And that's what really made me fall in love with East Aurora because I'd never been over here before. And I was like, this is such a cool town. And each and every time I got usurped by somebody that had more seniority or something like Uh that. You know, somebody would come out of the tool room that had 12 years experience and I'm just a college kid with no experience. Right. So consequently, I never got into the model shop. Um, I I toured it and interviewed there several times. And then... uh, they basically laid me off after working there about six to nine months. I can't remember exactly oh. the, the length of it. Mm-hmm. So I was laid off and I was like, wow, here it is almost December. And it's like, I guess I could go back to college. But then I, I picked up other jobs and stuff like that. And throughout my career, I ended up using that model making degree to get me other jobs. I mean, I worked at Men in Medical. I worked at David Brace Displays, which was like a trade show house. Okay. And, uh, the model making always set me apart because they were always hiring like designers and draftsmen, but I could actually draw it and then go out in the shop and build it. So I could do both. And that was always intriguing to people. So they, that's, that's basically what I did. In 1987, I left David Brace Displays and I started my own business doing model making. So I was working for really big firms. Like I was working for Moog. I was working, I was working for Fisher Price. I was doing more freelance for Fisher Price than I ever did while I worked there. So I was freelancing for them. I was working for Moog. I was working for Simonelli Development. I was working for Uniland. I was doing scale models of the buildings that they were building. And uh, that was pretty cool. And it was moving along really nicely. And, you know, Buffalo is not a big enough town to have somebody just be a model maker that's doing this stuff all the time. But I was doing patterns and all kinds of weird things for any company in town, anybody that needed something. And what was happening is people like Simonelli and Uniland, they would finish a building. I would make the model of the building. They would build the building. And then after the building was finished, they would call me up and say, can you do a reception desk? Can you do some lobby seating and stuff like that? 
I had no idea how to do furniture. I, you know, I knew how to do woodworking because of the model making, but I had no idea how to do furniture. So I just started designing furniture, reception desks and things like that. And, and that started my, my career in furniture making. Basically at that point, computers came into view. Mm-hmm. So as a model maker, things started happening to the point where I was designing and building furniture and that was taking over my life. At the same time, computers were getting rid of people like me because they don't need model makers when you have 3D printers. You know, when you enter a drawing into a computer and then the computer just lays down the the plastic and, you know, in five hours you have a model which would take me five days to do from scratch. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, that's how I became a furniture maker. I started out just doing Formica work and really simple uh, stuff. And, but, but I always had the design part, which was part of me. And, and that's, what's always set me apart is that I can design and build. Mm -hmm. So I started at the lowest level and through trial and error and just learning, you know, through your mistakes and all that kind of thing, built myself up to what I do now. And now I'm like, probably, I I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm probably one of the highest ends of the furniture making spectrum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the background and that's how it all happened. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what, what your day-to-day looks like now, what, what the basis for your business is? I've been at this location for 20 years. Uh, this, this is in East Aurora. It's uh, behind the schoolhouse gallery, so we have a gallery out front. Uh, Tom Harris and Ben Little um, built this up. They built their shop, started their business about the same time that I did. And uh, they started out in the gallery, and then they built a shop behind it, and they knew that I was, my, my shop was over in Clarence and they knew I was driving back and forth from East Aurora to Clarence every day. And they knew I was looking for a place to build a shop in East Aurora or rent a shop in East Aurora. So being, you know, Roycroft artisans, they said to me, why don't you just come and work with us and build a shop right next to us? Even though we're competitors, they said, well, you know, we want to be more like colleagues. Let's, let's just build a shop and we can help each other out. And it's been an unbelievable relationship for the past 20 years, just, uh, working with those guys and, you know, going back and forth. It's nice having a second shop right next door with tools, just like I have here. You can go back and forth. We help each other out. We all have strengths and weaknesses. It's, it's really been a nice symbiotic relationship. It's it's really worked out well. So, so that's been a great thing. And coming in here every day, I live about three minutes from here. So, um, I think I spend more time in the shop than I do at home, but, uh, (laughs) I believe that. (laughs) But it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great place to be every day. Um, I basically designed this shop and, uh, had a a contractor of mine come and build it. And he's a good friend of mine. He put the addition on my house and he built my, uh, you know, built my shop and all that stuff. So I kind of worked side by side with him. As a matter of fact, he was just out here this past summer helping me put the air conditioning in. So, um, you know, we tried to hire an electrician and nobody would come. So you just get the guy that, you know, then that's, that's how it works. So, um, so, so day to day I'm here Monday through Saturday. Sometimes on Sundays, I have generally a year backlog at all times, and I've had that for 20 years. People say, "Well, you must have not been that busy." And no, I've always been that busy. It's there's so much work out there if you really want it. That's the thing. How does that year-long backlog happen? I guess for someone who doesn't understand the woodworking, the business that you're in, how does that? 
I, I think, I think part of the problem is me. I have, I have a really hard time saying no to people <laughs> um, when people come to me with a job or if it's, if it's a job that I'm very excited about, you know, I really want to do it. I always say to my clients when they come in, you know, they, they think, well, you got a beer, uh, a year backlog, you must charge a fortune. It's like, no, I, I charge m- middle of the road prices. I'm, I'm from Buffalo and I charge Buffalo prices. I can't outprice myself in my own hometown. That's the way I look at it. We get a lot of people in the gallery from like New York City or Boston or the DC area. They'll be visiting, staying at the Roycroft Inn and that type of thing. And you can hear them whispering in the corner of the gallery that everything's half price. It's like, (laughs) yeah, well, it's half price where you live. But these are like Buffalo prices. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the people from out of town, they they think they're getting a deal. And and, and in reality, they are for, for where they live. But, you know, for me, I'm not in this for the money. It's like, I always like to say that, um, I don't make a lot of money doing what I do, but I'm wealthy in other ways because I love what I do every day. Mm -hmm. So that makes a huge difference. And, uh, you know, it's cost me a marriage and relationships and all that kind of stuff. But, but, you know, I, I love what I do. I guess I, I think you've built up other relationships as well through that. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, friendships and just, just the people that you meet and even clients that have become really good friends over the years. And, um, a year backlog, people think that that's such a long time, but it's, it scares me how fast that year goes by. It's just crazy. I mean, I constantly have so much work that I'm turning down work all the time and I don't want to do that. There's, there's, things I want to do. Now there's a lot of, uh, pieces that I make that, that you need, you need to do a cash flow. You need to get paid. Now I'm, I'm pretty famously known for doing picture frames for other Roycroft artisans and for artists and galleries around the area and that type of thing. And, uh, to be honest with you, it's not fun doing picture frames anymore, but Mm it's cash flow, And it's, it's that little niche item that I'm really good at. I can do it with my, you know, one hand tied behind my back with my eyes closed, but it, it, I do make money doing it and it is cash flow. And most of the time when I'm doing a big job, you're talking six, eight, 10, 12 weeks before you finish that job, you take some money down and then you got to get that job done to get paid. But frames I'll do like every 30 days Mm -hmm. because the frames come in and they have to be out the door because the artists that I'm working for are doing shows and that type of thing. So that's the only thing that I really adhere to a deadline. If I have a fault in my business, uh, my fault would be never finishing anything on time. (laughs) But there's a reason for that. (laughs) Exactly. The reason for that is... um, is basically I don't let anything leave the shop unless I'm very, very happy with it. Even if I don't have any money and and it's like, I need to get this job done so I can pay the bills. It's like, thank God for a line of credit at this point, because I'd rather just go into the line of credit, pay the interest on it and just make sure that the job goes out the door. Uh, ever since I started my business in 1987, I've signed and dated every single piece I've done. Even the small pieces like the frames, I sign and date them on the back. And, uh, that's because I'm proud of what I do. And if my name's on it, I want to make sure that it's good. That's, mm-hmm. that's the thing. And, and even with those frames, you can tell just, just by, by looking at it, that you've put in, put time and attention into the details and the material and the, the craftsmanship that goes into that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm very proud of what I do. And, and I feel that, 
even the frames that I want them to look like furniture. I want them to look like a piece of art, you know, because they're actually housing a piece of art and, Mm -hmm. and they have to look good. I I just don't slap things together. And that's why I have a year backlog because I take my time and I do things right. And I want to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm a Roycroft master artisan. There's a lot that comes with that. So basically I have to uphold that quality level. Definitely. Can you, can you talk about some of the, the bigger pieces that you mentioned? Like what, what's that stuff that's taken up your time for a long time? Some of the really big ones are like dining tables and chairs. Um, that's, that's, you're, you're talking somewhere in the, the 15 to $25,000 range, um, depending on how many chairs they want. And just chairs alone are, I would have to say, in my opinion, are the hardest thing for a woodworker to do. Um, everybody thinks it's just a simple dining chair, but when you think about it, that chair, people kind of abuse their chairs. They, they feel that they're just going to throw their weight into that chair and that chair is going to hold them up. They, they have complete confidence that nothing's going to happen when they sit in that chair. So that responsibility comes on to me and I have to design that chair so that the joints hold up so that everything is overbuilt a little bit because people lean back in their chairs. They use them for ladders. They do all kinds of crazy things. So from a difficulty standpoint, chairs are definitely the hardest thing to make. Yeah. And, and especially when you're doing a set of let's most average Dining sets are usually eight chairs. I have done 12 in the past. And what's interesting about that is when you start cutting wood for all of those different parts, you've got so many parts in the shop, they're everywhere. And it's just trying to keep track of what you're doing is insane. So you have to keep that, keep everything in, because I, I tend to build everything in the flat with just a simple board and put the the color on it and everything. And then the final assembly is the last thing I do and then spray the finish on it. Okay. So, um, that's a little bit different style than some people, some people take and build and glue and then sand everything and then color it and then put the finish on. I like to treat everything as one individual piece and make sure that it's perfect before it gets put together. So it's a little bit different style than some furniture makers, but I, I've grown to like that style and, and it's, it's what I've done always. So I was never formally trained, so I wasn't told I couldn't do it that way. <laughs> but do you find you have a lot of pieces, um, going at once? Like with that backlog, do you focus on the dining room chairs or are you dining room chairs? I got to a point now I'm going to do a table for someone else. Occasionally I'll do that. Occasionally I have several pieces in the shop at one time, but not all the time. Cause I like to focus on the piece itself. And, but there are times when, you know, you're waiting for something to dry, glue to dry or something like that. And you can jump onto another job or something along those lines. I think one of the hardest things I'm finding to do is, is time to design because I sit down and do all my own drawings too. Mm -hmm. So every so often I have to just get myself in that mode and I have to go in there and sit down at the drafting table. Cause I don't use CAD computers. I know how to do it. I learned it in college. I didn't like it. And I wish I would have stuck with it because it's 10 times faster than what I do now. But people look at my drawings and they say, well, that's kind of like a work of art and you're mm-hmm. doing it by hand. I'm using a drafting table and triangles and all that stuff. But I really enjoy that. And, you know, it would take, it takes, you know, five to 10 hours to do a drawing where on a CAD piece, you could probably do it in an hour, you know, and if you make a mistake, you can easily just move things around. And I can't do that with pencil, but Mm -hmm. it's, I I don't feel creative in front of a computer screen. Um, it's not that I don't use computers. Um, I use them any, any chance I get, and I'll use any kind of technique to, you know, whatever is out there uh, that's the latest and greatest, I will use it. But, 
uh, when it comes to designing and thinking and sitting there with a pencil in my hand and a piece of paper in front of me, that's, that's how I do my best work. So it really works out well that way. And now as someone who is self-taught as a furniture maker, what are some of the things that you've brought to your design or, or other works that have inspired you or other creators who have inspired you? Uh, I do get influenced a lot by looking at other people's work. I don't copy other people's work. I never do reproductions. Um, I would really hate it if somebody did that, if somebody stole my designs. I've seen it happen a few times. Um, but I, I, I borrow from other people and I think everyone does. I don't think there's no, there's not much that's truly original out there anymore. So I look to the past, but I also look to see what current furniture makers are doing and I will borrow a detail or something like that. And then I will take it and run with it and turn it into something I think is better or something that fits the need that I'm, you know, trying to project for the client. Um, what I really like is clients that give me the ability to do whatever I want. And, and I can, I have this innate ability to see things in color in my head, completely done and finished. And that's when I start drawing and clients, what my job is at, at that point is to get it into the client's head and say, this is what you want. And I don't like to force my views on people. And, uh -huh. and what happens sometimes is I'll design a piece of furniture and I'll have it in a certain species of wood or a certain color and they'll change it up on me. And then I can't get the one that I want out of my head. It drives me crazy. There are times when I'll do, um, I'll do chairs for a client and they want something simpler and I'll do a set of eight chairs for them, but the ninth chair I'll do at the same time for myself, and it's the way I wanted to do it. And then I'll stick it up in the gallery as just a one-off chair, which is kind of a neat thing. And I would, I would always hoping that they don't sell, but sometimes they do sell. And um, I still don't have my own. I don't have many much of my own furniture at all at home, mm -hmm. but I've always envisioned having a dining table that uh, that I make, and then all these random chairs that I've done from all these sets over the years, just sitting around that table, and none of them match, which would be really cool, I think. So kind of eclectic. I was curious, yeah. So do you have you know? There's the contractor saying of like you have the time to go work on someone else's home, but your home is unfinished or something. Do you have any of your own stuff, or is there something you're working on for yourself? I've got several pieces from the early years that, uh, that really, I don't feel that I could sell because I don't think they're good enough. So I live with those. <laughs> and, uh, when it, when it comes to the contractor, not finishing his own home, that's exactly how it is with furniture. Obviously your, your design and work has aesthetic appeal and, and that's a, a large part of what you're going for, but it also has that utilitarian appeal where, you know, these are objects that are made that are meant to be used, sometimes used on a daily basis, like those chairs that you were talking about. How do you strike the balance or, or how do you approach that when you're designing something? I think that's what 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 is great about being a furniture maker is not only do you get to create a piece of art, but at the same time, it's like you said, it's utilitarian. So this piece of art is actually functional. It's going to get used. And that's really cool. It does limit how crazy you can be sometimes. But I tend to mix and match and do things with veneer and different materials. I mean, a huge advantage to living in East Aurora and working in East Aurora is certainly wood, which is the veneer company that is headquartered in East Aurora. And that place <clears throat> is amazing. They get veneer from all over the world. And as it's a huge advantage to me as a designer, I get to go down there and see the veneer. 
I get to pick it out. I have friends in California that are furniture makers. My one friend, Rick, he calls me from, uh, he, he lives just outside of Fresno in that area. And he calls me and he says, go over to Certainly Wood and look at this wood for me and tell me what you think. I said, I don't have time to do that. <laughs> but, I, but I realize that that is a great advantage for me because I can just drive over there in five minutes and just sit down and take a look at the wood and just buy what I need. Mm-hmm. So that's really helped my career. And Certainly Wood uh, and, and Greg Engel especially has been a great asset to me. He's, he's almost like a design consultant because I just call him up and say, what do you got? What do you think? And he will suggest something and boom. I mean, so, I mean, I've known Greg for 30 years. It's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a great guy to work with. And, and one of my apprentices, Jeff Nigel, he works over there as well. He's, he works at certainly would, but he's, he's been in my shop and been with me for 20 years. So he can do anything that I can do. You had mentioned one of the interns that you've worked with in the past, and I know you've had different interns and apprentices. Can can you tell us a little bit about what that process is like and what you try and impart to them? Yes, I, I've had several over the years, and it's always somebody who's just really interested. I can usually tell in the first, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes of meeting them when they're interested in working and whether they're going to work out here or not. Um, Jeff is, Jeff is integral to my business. Um, he does all the behind the scenes work. He does all the computer work for me. He made my website. Um, he mixes up the dye colors that we kind of came together. So everything we finish with our colors, uh, our stain colors and all that, um, we've worked on together and Jeff makes them at home now and brings them in. It's just crazy. He does all these different things for me and he doesn't get paid and he doesn't want to get paid. He has free use of the shop. He's got keys to the shop. He can come here and use it anytime he wants. He's just been an awesome friend for the past 20 years. And without him, I wouldn't be, you know, Thomas Path Design. It wouldn't be where it is. So I really have to give him a lot of that. On top of that, I used to teach, uh, furniture design at Villa Maria College. I taught there for six years and uh, they had an interior design program that the third year juniors would have to take to get their four-year interior design degree. So the first few years of that six-year span, we uh, did the the work out here in the shop. So so the girls would, and, and most of it was girls. I've, I really rarely had a, a male student. Only a few of them in the interior design program were males. Most of them were girls, and they were all awesome. They were just really great. They were pretty much raw recruits, so to speak, and uh, they would come out here and they would work here. And then eventually Villa built a shop, um, at the college. And for the, the four years after that, I taught there, but it was taking over my business and it was ma- it was getting just too busy to the point where I, I couldn't keep my business up and continue to, to do the teaching. But what it gained me was just really working well with young ladies or, or women. And I, I noticed that they don't have the same opportunities in this field and it was really great. And I don't know how it happened happened, but I have to this day, I still have young ladies that want to come and work. They don't have any preconceived notions of any machoism or any like, well, I'm a guy, I know how to do woodworking and that type of thing. And you don't have to, you know, retrain them because they've never done it before. As a matter of fact, I find that girls are even more aggressive on the tools, almost have to slow them down because there's a danger uh, type thing. But um, I just got really good at teaching girls and some of my best uh, people have been, you know, like Claire, you, you know, Claire, I mean, Claire's been amazing and Claire uh, 
was going to the University of Delaware. She was learning uh, furniture conservation. She's got a bachelor's degree in it now. She finished that, graduated. She wants to go back and do her postgrad work there. But in between, she asked me to help her get into a uh, college in the UK. And uh, that college is very prestigious. It's called Westine College. It's about an hour and a half south of London, and it's really hard to get into. So Claire came in uh, and worked with me for like a summer and played around with different things and really got herself ready to do this test. And they actually videotaped a test of her, you know, doing woodworking to just get into the college. She had to show that she had skills. And then I had to write several letters of recommendation and all that type of stuff. And she got in and I'm so proud of her. She did really well. She spent a year in, uh, in the UK, uh, and, you know, got a certificate or whatever the equivalent was over there. And, she just came back this past year and she landed a job with a gentleman who used to be the head conservator at Williamsburg. And so she, he started his own business in Virginia and she's down there now as his only employee. So I miss, miss the hell out of her right now. I mean, I wish she was, was here. And then whenever she comes back, she just visited a few weeks ago. And I said, uh, I said, when are you going to come work for me? And she says, when are you going to pay me? So <laughs> the bottom line is, is that I just, I, I, there is enough work, and, and, and seriously, if she wants to come back in the future, I think it would be awesome to have her here. And then I've had several other uh, young ladies that, that came through me th- through college and just young ladies that live in East Aurora that are interested in woodworking. Uh, Whitney Perot is one of the latest ones, and Whitney's uh, still working with me, except for when COVID hit, and that pretty much shut that down for now. But But Whitney's got a project that she's about three quarters of the way through and she needs to come back and get that finished. So we're going to make that happen. What's the industry like in some fashion, maybe in the Western York area or across the country for people similar to you? You know, there's no Tom Pathcott everywhere, obviously, but like, what's, what's that like? Is it growing? Is it decreasing or? Um, I think it's growing. Uh, there's always, there, there always seems to be a need for high end furniture work. So if you're really good at what you do, there's going to be plenty of work out there. You're a Roycroft master artisan. Can you tell me a little bit about what that process is, how you got involved with the Roycroft and, and what it means? Yes. When I moved to East Aurora uh, in the early 90s, I really didn't know a lot about arts and crafts. I mean, I was doing lots of different furniture. I was doing a lot of different styles, mostly contemporary studio furniture and that type of thing. And The arts and crafts style, which encompasses Roycroft, is just such a really true, honest, simple style. Very classic, but very simple and just really beautiful style. And and, and of course, if if it's in the town you live in, that's what you want to do. When I first uh, came to East Aurora, I started noticing the Roycroft uh, and my friend Greg Engel took me, you know, through the Roycroft before it was restored and and showed me all that type of thing. And I started doing arts and crafts furniture and they have uh, shows here in East Aurora that happen in the summer and, and in the winter. And he said, you should apply for one of the shows. So I made some furniture and I applied for a show. I think that was back in 94 or 95 and did my first Roycroft Summer Festival. And 
it, it was a huge success for me and it was really interesting and I got really great reactions. And one of the best reactions was from some of the old time Roycroft people like, like Ben and Tom, the guys next door and like, uh, Auburn sleeper, the, one of the founders of the Roycroft Renaissance. And as a matter of fact, Al came over to my booth and he said, uh, he said, you really should consider becoming a Roycroft artisan. And that's what actually got me into it. So to become a Roycroft artisan, you have to apply for the mark. And the mark is, is the actual back-to-back double R mark. It's not easy to get. It's a very strenuous jury process. And when you first apply for it, you have to submit four actual pieces of work along with four images of the work that you've done in the past year. And if you're granted the right to use the mark, you get to use that mark for one year only. And every subsequent year, you have to reapply with new work because they want to they want to see growth and they want to see you continuing your craft. They don't want you to get something like I don't know, I could equate it to tenure where, um, you know, you do four great pieces and then you're in for life. No, that's not how it works. They want to see you continue to improve. So basically at this point, after you've been doing that for five uh, subsequent years, you will be invited by the master's jury. Now, the master's jury is made up of Roycroft master artisans who used to be artisans. They were elevated to master level. They sit on the jury. The jury happens every year. It's usually the first weekend in April. And there's usually 20 to 30 people that sit on that jury, uh, encompassed from the master artisans in different uh, media, different categories. When you are invited to apply for master, you're, you're let, they let you know the year before. So on your, you're eligible after your fifth year or your fourth year, you're eligible after your fourth year coming into your fifth year. Uh, if they invited you in the previous jury, then you can apply for master. That's one of the hardest things to get because they literally expect you to have mastered your craft and it's really difficult. And we've had some issues over the years with it. And we have like a mentoring system where, you know, you get with another person that's in your field and they help you, which is really weird because you're actually helping your competitor become a master, but that's how it, you know, it should be. You, you should just put that stuff aside and just help the person get to where they need to get. So basically when you're going from artisan to master, you again have to submit four actual pieces of work and four images of work you've done over the past year, but it has to be the best of everything. And most people don't make it the first time through. And a lot of people just quit after that. They just get frustrated. And it's like the people that push through and reapply, those are the people that are the, the artisans that we have now that are masters. Now, after you become a master artisan, you're not safe. Basically as a master you have to reapply every five years. So basically, um, mine will be coming up in 2023. This will be the fifth or sixth time that I've had to reapply as a master. So I've been a master uh, like almost 30 years now. So it's, it's kind of crazy. Why keep doing that? What's the drive for you to... A lot of people ask me that. Why do you jump through all these hoops? Um, it, it carries a certain prestige with it. And uh, being, and especially living and working in East Aurora, which is the home of the Roycroft, it really makes a difference. Now, sometimes when you go across the country, people have no idea what the Roycroft mark is. But then you're always there at a show or you're, you're in these weird pockets like Asheville, North Carolina, where people think you're a rock star because you're a Roycroft artisan. It's really cool. And uh, they understand what it means and they understand how difficult it is. And, and, and it's so difficult that 
you know, you can go to the Roycroft campus and there is nobody on the Roycroft campus that is a Roycroft artisan. It's there's all these artisans working on the campus and they're trying to put themselves off as a Roycroft artisan and then, you know, through association with the Roycroft campus, but they're not juried artisans. They don't go through the same process. Some of them have in the past and they didn't make it through or they didn't follow the rules. So I think it's just, it's just a quality thing. I mean, there's, there's five criteria that they judge you on. It's uh, high quality and hand craftsmanship, uh, excellence in design, continuing artistic growth, originality of expression and professional recognition. So if you can pull off those five things, then you are a Roycroft master artisan. And, uh, and it's, it's a great honor to be a Roycroft master artist. And I, I, I enjoy it. And I, I don't know that I would, you know, want to lose that, that artisanship. Definitely. It's, it's really been very rewarding over the years. I think one of the interesting things about that Roycroft Artisan program is that you do have people who are working in very different media and in different fields. So like you said, Al Sleeper does, he's a silversmith. He's a silversmith, yes. And so I, I think it's neat that you're bringing together these same qualities and, and philosophy in different fields of work. It's, it's like a guild. When you think back to the old time guilds back in, in, in Europe and that type of thing, it's, it's very similar to that. But what's unique about it is it's not just one media. It's not just one category. It's whatever uh, the Roycrofters did back in the day, because at, on the Roycroft campus, they participated in all these arts. Now, they didn't have artisans back then. They had employees. You know, nowadays it's 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 gone more artistic. Back then it was a business. Mm -hmm. Now it's more of an art endeavor. So I think that it's changed somewhat. And uh, you know, not not that the Roycroft did not produce quality material, but you know, they they were basically employees. Years ago, I was in London at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and they had several pieces of arts and crafts artwork and furnishings there, including. I believe two or three pieces from the Roycroft in East Aurora, and it says Roycroft Campus, East Aurora, New York. That was incredible to see in one of the world's premier design museums. Exactly. I mean, and that's amazing too, because, you know, you can see it in the States here and you can see it when you go to, you know, hotbeds like Asheville or Chicago around the Frank Lloyd Wright stuff or, you know, out in Pasadena with the green and green, uh, you know, the architects out there that did arts and crafts style furniture and, and that type of thing. But to see it, uh, you know, over in the birthplace of arts and crafts, that's 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 pretty prestigious when you think about that, because the arts and crafts movement started in in the UK. It started in England in, in the 1850s and, you know, didn't really hit America until like the 1890s and, and that type of thing. So the Americans copied the Brits. Yep, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, as, as you said, you know, there are so many things that have been done before, but you take a good idea and you, you put your own spin on it. Exactly. You take, you take your own approach to it. So what they say, uh, the, the type of furniture that I do, you know, if you want to follow up on that even a little bit more, I've been told that my furniture is arts and crafts for the 21st century. So arts and crafts for the 21st century just you know, makes me feel like I'm doing a contemporary version of arts and crafts, which, which makes me feel better that I'm not copying, you know, Stickley or Frank Lloyd Wright or any of that type of stuff. I'm, I'm not doing reproductions. Not that I don't think that those things were brilliant. I just want to be original and do my own thing. So that's, that's probably the biggest difference. It's a contemporary version of, of the old arts and crafts style. People always ask me, they say, 
what is your favorite piece? What's, you know, what's the favorite piece you've ever done? And I said, the one I haven't done yet, because for me, the challenge of designing and building something new, that's what gets me here in the morning. I mean, this, this is, I, you know, I've said several times, I love what I do, but there's times when I have to come in and I have to sand for 10 to 12 hours straight. And it's just brutal. It's just grinding out production type work. And I keep reminding myself the whole time. We have a saying that sanding is a procedure, not a punishment. And, and that's what it is all about. Because if you don't sand that piece of wood, or in some cases, some people don't even sand, they scrape it. Uh, so they scrape it with a metal scraper. And, and if, so if you don't pay attention to that level of finish before you put the actual finish on, the actual finish isn't going to look good. So it's the sanding that makes that piece look great. It's not the finish that you sprayed on afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a big deal of difference. It's 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 necessary. Unfortunately, <laughs> I give you a lot of credit because I think of sanding as a punishment. Anytime I've had to do some house project or something, I've done the steps in our house and yeah. it's like got to sand it. And it's just the worst thing in the world. I have to get in the right mindset. I have to come in early in the morning and just say, all right, you're just going to sit there at the sanding table all day long. And you just I've got uh, noise canceling headphones. I've got a downdraft table. <clears throat> I've got lights that, you know, side lighting that give a raking light over top of everything so I can see every single every single detail so i don't have to wear a mask because the downdraft table sucks the dust into it i've got you know the headphones on and i can just totally zen out and just get into a zone and just grind that out and that's what you got to do are there are there parts of the process you know from getting the wood you said you enjoy you know there's the design element sanding to finishing it are, is there times you find yourself enjoying it more and sanding obviously is not the one. And then are there points where you're like, I just need a break or something? Yeah. I think the, the most fun thing, um, that I, that I like to do the most is, uh, the joinery part, you know, uh, putting the pieces together, cutting the joinery and, and whether it's done by machine, whether it's done by hand, uh, making that piece come together, make, make that joint just perfect each and every time that, that is the thing that I, I, I excel in. Uh, I think that in the design, I really enjoy the design part because when I'm designing, I'm actually drawing it and figuring out how I'm going to build it at the same time. So in my head, I'm going this, these are the steps I'm going to be taking. So I'm actually designing so that I can build it myself, which really works out. I do a, what they call hybrid woodworking. I'm a combination of hand tools and power tools. I've gotten to the point many, many years where I was just using almost exclusively power tools and you forget how much control you have with hand tools. And one of the things that Claire taught me, uh, just her being my apprentice was, she, she brought back my appreciation for hand tools because, you know, she likes to do things the old way. And that's how she was taught in in college, because when you're restoring furniture, you want to do it the same way they did it so that the tool marks are there and everything else. I'm always looking for the fastest way possible because I just want to get paid because I just want to get past this job, get to the next job because I'm always under pressure. And she brought me back down to earth and said, you really need to, you know, work on your hand skills and get back to that. And that definitely was something that I took from her. I mean, I taught her everything that I know, but you know, that, you know, from a young girl, she brought me back into that. And I really appreciate that from her. Definitely. 
what type of people buy these items? Do they have certain ideas? Are they gifts that they're doing for these projects? Um, what's what's it's a wide variety of people. It's it's people that are well to do in most cases, which makes me almost recession proof, which is kind of nice and lately covid proof. But it it's not you know, uber rich people, super rich people is just, you know, young professionals and older people that they like fine things. And a lot of the stuff is gifts. I, I do a lot of anniversary type things and things like that. Uh, sometimes it's birthdays, uh, different stuff. I had a, a client from New York City that uh, they were moving to Buffalo and they ordered a Morris chair and they wanted something special. And I, I didn't, I didn't understand why they never really, you know, articulated that to me. But at one point um, they came and they were visiting from New York city. And, and I, I think they were both teachers and they were relocating to Buffalo and they wanted to uh, sit in an actual chair. And I didn't have one made at the time, except for the one I had at home. So I brought my chair from home into the gallery and I had it sitting in the gallery and they came and they sat in it and, you know, discussed different things and, and what they wanted material wise and all that. And so I took on the job and started building the, the Morris chair. Now Morris Morris chair is a, a chair that the back adjusts, you know, three different levels. And it's, it's very iconic to the arts and crafts style. It's, you know, it's probably like one of the most iconic pieces. And, you know, so for over a year, they were waiting a year to, for me to do this chair. And in that time, they, they had moved from New York City to Buffalo and they were living down uh, in the Elmwood area. I, I don't remember exactly what street it was on, but uh, I think it was Lexington or something like that. But basically, um, I had finally finished the chair and it was a year later and uh, I was getting ready to deliver it and they asked me to put a little inscription on it and I wasn't really sure where they wanted it and she said she wanted it kind of hidden a little bit out of place. It was something special to them and the inscription said R and D and then a date and I was like, it was very simple, very clean and so I carved it in to the back piece of the chair uh, behind the cushion. So, I mean, in other words, the cushion covered it, but, you know, the cushions are removable, so you could very easily see it when you adjust it or whatever. And she never really gave me further explanation as to what the R&D was and, and that type of thing. And uh, uh, I delivered the piece. Uh, I brought it into their house and set it up for them, and it was going to be in their bedroom. Uh, and it was, a, you know, just a nice lounge chair in their bedroom. And so I had to ask her, I said, you know, here's, here's the, the initials, the R and D and in the date. And I said, what does that signify? And, you know, why is that so special to you? And she said that was in lieu of an engagement ring. She said she did not want an engagement ring when they got engaged. Uh, it was about five or six years previously. Um, she said that she wanted a special piece of furniture built specifically for something that both of them could use. And they didn't want to, you know, just a piece of jewelry that, you know, would just cost a fortune and that type of thing. They'd rather use, use it, use the money on something practical that both of them could enjoy. And I thought that that was just such a special thing and it just really blew me away. And it's like, I thought, well, you know what? Diamonds aren't always a girl's best friend. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a cool thing. And, uh, you touch people's lives with, with some of the things you can do. So it's very rewarding. I always say I'm wealthy in other ways. And that's one of the ways I'm wealthy that I get to touch people's lives, uh, you know, and it's, it's something that they live with and, 
and they'll have every day. And, and also it's, it's going to be an heirloom. It's something that they'll hand down to their children and that type of thing. So, you know, there's always a story that goes with it and that's what makes pieces unique and makes pieces very custom and one of a kind. So that's going to be so cool to see that, you know, knowing that that was their, you know, not an engagement ring, just this piece that they can use, pass down to their possibly kids or family. It's going to stay with them. And, you know, like you said, you're designing this for generations. Exactly. And to see, to know, like when you're gone someday, that chair's still going. It's still got the inscription on it. That's really cool. And that's one of the cool things. And that's one of the reasons, almost the, the major reason that I sign and date everything I do, because basically, um, it's a sense of history. And, 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 and where I got that from is when I first started my business in Clarence back in 1987, I was working with a gentleman who shared a shop with me. Uh, we kind of went into business together. He was doing antique restoration. So he re- restored and refinished antiques. So he did his on his side of the shop and I built new furniture and did model making on my side of the shop. And it would be very cool when he would be working on a piece of furniture and he'd call me over and he'd say, look at this. He goes, somebody signed that. That was 120 years ago. And it was just so cool. And I always thought, well, you know what? I should sign and date my stuff so that I can leave some kind of tangible, you know, history behind. And, uh, ever since that's what I've done. So it really just, uh, I'm leaving a piece of myself, uh, you know, behind all these years. So it's, it's, it's a nice thing. It's, it, it, it makes you feel good inside. Now, Tom, where can people find your work? You can see it online at, uh, thomaspafkdesign.com and Pafk is spelled P-A-F as in Frank K. You can see it on there. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just look up Thomas Pafk. You know, you'll see most of the current work on the social websites. Uh, that's that's something we're working and, uh, you know, I got to get Jeff on that. Got to get him to get that website updated. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we've got so much work that, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of it's kind of nice to to be this successful. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us for the show. Thank you. It's my privilege. Thanks for listening to the Enthusiasts Guild. You can subscribe and hear all of our episodes through your podcast player of choice. Find us on Facebook at the Enthusiasts Guild, on Twitter at Enthusiast Guild, or contact us at theenthusiastguild at gmail.com. Music for this episode is Hustle by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons license.